Welcome to the first of our new Q&A programme from Rumbles Radio for June 2021. And with us today, we've got the MP for Keithley and Ilkley, Robbie Moore. Welcome to Rumbles Radio. Well, it's great to be here. It's absolutely great to hear. And thanks for the welcome. Um, so we're going to cover some of the big topics uh, affecting our area at the moment. And we've got plenty of questions that your constituents and some of our listeners have been sending in as well. And I guess the obvious place to start is probably the pandemic and the roadmap out of lockdown and where we are at the moment. Infection rates, as we speak, have gone up a little bit again now. I think they're at the highest since April. Are you still hoping life will be pretty much normal again from the 21st of June and we'll be able to do more things? Yeah, very much so. Here in this constituency, well, across the whole Bradford district, we have had some form of restrictions ever since day one um, of the pandemic commencing so and it's been tough hasn't it I mean it's been crikey it's been tough on many families individuals businesses over the last you know 14 months um, I think everyone's got their their minds set on the 21st of June um, and I am incredibly hopeful uh, that with the vaccine rollout going at pace um, and being well received um, as, as best as it can do that the 21st um, will be be the date where f- the further easing of the restrictions happen so uh, very much hopeful for that uh, everybody's waiting for answers and we'll come on to a couple of questions that have been sent in i mean one that we've had is about any future lockdowns i know the prime minister's been quite clear to mm. say this was it and we're not going to have any more with the delta variant that we're seeing now and spikes in certain areas do you think there could be further lockdowns well of course um the pm with with the whole cabinet um amongst others are obviously monitoring the new variants that are coming out and it's not just the delta variant is it that's emerging at the moment there's there's others now causing concern um and it's quite right that they 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 identify the new variants coming in and monitor the impact that that's having but i certainly would not want to see any form of uh, of new strict lockdowns imposed I certainly wouldn't want to see a regional approach taken Uh, you know again I come back to the fact that we as uh, the Bradford district have never really come out of restrictions Uh, and I do feel that our route out of this as I've always said is is the vaccine rollout which is is been going at speed so I suppose it's it's making sure that the vaccines that we're all taking at the moment um, are are, are suited to the new variants that are emerging and keeping an eye on that and in hindsight were you happy with the lockdown we've we had a question from Catherine and Ilkley who says, you know, because it wasn't ward based, we had areas of the Bradford districts that were having higher infection rates and places like Ilkley, where at one point it was really low, but they were still under the strictest measures mm. when over the, you know, up the road in, in Skipton, they weren't because of the county boundary. Yeah. And, and I, at the time, was um, very strongly advocating a localised approach which is set on local data and uh, that geographical view should be taken and you're quite rightly identified you know the Worth Valley and Ilkley um, had no Covid infections for a long period of time and then of course Ilkley had a few um, uh, more and and then it increased Um, but my view was very much that it seemed unfair to almost um, keep certain parts of our area in type restrictions which they were at that time uh, whilst um, you know not really contributing to the, the the group effort of being able to come out of it altogether, so I feel that and, and of course at that time we didn't have the vaccine rollout, yeah. but now we have the vaccine rollout. I certainly do not want to see a regionalised approach taken because I think we're beyond that, you know, uh, and assuming the vaccine works, which it absolutely does, against all new variants, and that's monitored. That's where the focus should be. Um, we've we've had a few sectors, obviously, that have still not been able to function properly. Uh, one of those is is weddings. Uh, and Sharon Cook, mm. who's in Howard, says, can you ask the Prime Minister, I don't know whether you've got a hotline to Mr Johnson or not, but can you ask the Prime Minister for some clarity on weddings? It's unfair we're left hanging as to whether or not ceremonies will be able to go ahead mm-hmm. yet after mm-hmm. the 21st of June. Mm-hmm. This has been the case since last March, and everybody who works in the wedding industry is obviously you know just on tenterhooks waiting for that go-ahead. Yeah, and, and the wedding sector... Um, amongst other big gathering type events and it's when we talk about the wedding centre of course it's not just the venue it's the transport it's the flowers it's the cake maker um, it's the musicians you know all contributing towards that industry that have had it probably tougher now more than other sectors you know retail is bouncing back and uh, hospitality in the greater sector of hospitality but um, I do think that that's why relying on uh, making sure that beyond the 21st of June we can provide more reassurance to those that have postponed their weddings uh, um, I've had many mates that are now you know move their dates for the third time um but They're still single and, and still single yeah but 
but it, it's it, those businesses have had it incredibly tough. Um, and yes, I I sit on the the all parliamentary parliamentary group that we set up actually uh, during the pandemic specifically to focus on weddings cross party to make sure that we're putting that lobbying effort onto the government, onto Oliver Dowden um, as well as the business secretary. Oliver Dowden is the culture secretary as well as the business secretary um, to try and make sure that we a have more reassurance provided for that sector, but b where more financial support could be provided if that certainty is not guaranteed that it is given. One thing that has some, had some financial support this week and has been in the news is catch-up funding for schools. We've got a lot of schools in our area that are probably in need of this catch-up funding. Um, are you happy with the the level, with the you know £50 per pupil? It seems a lot less than some other countries are allocating for this kind of work. Yeah, and uh, and obviously that's been that's probably been the one the one big issue that's hitting my inbox this week is getting correspondence from from parents and from residents on that. Um, you know, we've had the announcement of the 1.3 billion this week. The uh, the PM has has quite you know quite quickly on the back of that announcement said, you know, please bear with us. There will be more funding that come. It will be coming down the track. I think it was his term that he used to specifically focus on catch up. Um, and I ha- I have been reassured from the concerns that I have raised this week on the back of the announcement that was made. Made, um, that there will be further announcements coming. I know that um, Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, is looking at how we can make sure that that catch-up realistically happens. Whether that results in having you know longer school hours and how much we eat into the sc- you know into school holidays beyond term time, but also how other mechanisms can be put in place. Because of course, some students have been more impacted than others. Um, uh, and actually, you know, you look at a constituency that I represent, um, some areas are very deprived. And some of the big challenges early on was making sure that those areas of the constituency are more deprived, actually have the tools to be able to keep the education going. Um, but now it's making sure that everyone has that ability to catch up. Uh, and I certainly will be lobbying Gavin Williamson and his team to make sure that um, that funding that additional funding over and above that's been announced uh, this week is put in place to make sure that that proper catch-up can happen. Because I think just to finally finish on that, you know, the children that we're talking about here have missed out significantly over the last 14 months, you know, and, and it's okay just having these quick chats about it, but it's making sure that that edu- proper education is delivered for those children and, and that real catch-up time is, is awarded. So, uh, and I would certainly be making sure that funding's put in place. And we you talked about the vaccine rollout. That is no question one of the success stories of the last 12 months of, you know, the rollout of vaccines and the level that we're now at. It has left some people asking why the health system can't be that efficient all of the time. Um, I've had a question here from Amanda, who's in Keithley. She says, GP practices are being paid by the government per jab that they give, if she's understood it right. These are large private practices with multiple sites already getting money to look after every patient. They've got doctors earning more than the Prime Minister. Why do they? Why did it need an incentive of giving them money per person to actually get that vaccine rollout to happen? Yeah, and, and that's a very good point. Uh, you know, an, an exceptionally good point. I think... Um, the challenge inevitably that we've had is the is that quick mobilization factor has so that incentivization's got to have been triggered r- right now at this point to to get that mobilization to happen quickly because as you've just touched on earlier on in you know in our conversation it's been about unlocking getting the getting away from these restrictions so we can get back to life as we knew it and that has of course had to um, result in getting mass vaccination as quickly as possible using all avenues you know I, I think i got my first jab last week um at the Airdale Hospital um, and they were doing a fantastic team but of course the modality partnership have been rolling out here in Silsden up at the Longley practice and uh, of course we've had the, the Springs Medical Centre in, in Ilkley rolling out as well as Skipton and Bradford and I, I think the, the point that's been made there is actually once we're beyond this pandemic how can we utilise the structure that we've created now to make sure that when it does come to other types of uh, medical provision being uh, rolled out how could it be worked not not just about jabs but actually looking at the system differently you know um, looking at more localized approaches rather than it all being centralized from central decision making being taken but I think one of the big learning practices for, for the whole NHS sector is actually 
um, with the vaccine rollout is is making sure that we listen to local voices and making sure that things work at that local level. And that's where I think GP practices can actually have a good influence on that through the primary care network and certainly through my interactions with the modality partnership that I've mentioned before. You know, their rollout has been done by getting retired doctors and vaccinators coming back in to, to help with this. But I do think there'll be lessons to be learned about how we can learn from this going forward in future healthcare. Final uh, point on the pandemic before we move on to something else, and uh, you'll be probably not surprised to hear that four of the questions that we got sent in uh, mentioned a man called Dominic Cummings, who's been in the news quite a bit uh, over the last year or so. Um, I'll read the questions to you and I'll give you the chance to kind of you know, say what you want to say. Um, Joel says, please explain how you feel about the absolutely catastrophic handling of the virus by the government, leading to one of the worst death rates and worst economic impacts in the world, especially in light of the revelations by Dominic Cummings exposing what a complete shambles and web of lies number 10 has been. Uh, Norman says, if the health secretary thinks Dominic Cummings is, Cummings is telling lies about him why won't he sue him uh, David from Ilkley says given he was so adamant in writing to constituents that Mr Cummings hadn't broken the rules uh, does Robbie Moore now re- regret this or does he still agree with Mr Cummings synopsis of government performance during 2020 particularly in September and Aaron in Keithley says uh, Mr Moore you sent replies about Dominic Cummings trip to Durham saying we should move on and implying that his account was honest um, do we now believe that his current account of the situation is honest Good, some good questions there. Um, so let me pick up with the first one, which dealt with, um, uh, I think the phrase that was used was the government's shambolic handling of the pandemic. You know, with respect to that sort of wording, I think I, you know, I'm going to have to disagree with that. I, you know, I, I do feel that very early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of learning to do right back in that March time, well, beyond before March, February time, before the restrictions came in. No government across the world really knew what they were dealing with at that time. But I, I do think that um, with the financial support that was put in very early on for many, uh, for many businesses uh, through the initial 10K grants, which seems like a, a lifetime ago now, the 10 and 20K grants, for hospitality sector, the furlough scheme, you know, business uh, rate relief, um, the, um, uh, VAT support, um, was all quick measures that the Treasury had to move really quickly to get their system in place to, to deal with that. Yeah. We've then seen the government grasp with a whole range of dealing with what are the right restrictions to impose, what aren't the right restrictions to impose, removing civil liberties. I mean, crikey, I never went in to be a member of parliament. I think some of the toughest votes that I've had to do is actually to restrict people uh, from carrying out their day-to-day activities. That's not what anyone goes into parliament to do. Um, Yeah, so absolutely being tough. And then the vaccine rollout, which I think no one can argue hasn't been anything but a a huge success. So coming on to the the issues with uh, with the Dominic Cummings scenario who is a chap that I have never met um, and yes gave evidence um, in one of the select committees over the last 10 days and um, undoubtedly a whole load of information came out of that Uh, my view being completely straight here uh, my personal view is um, that I when I sent that correspondence out um, uh, uh, crikey back in April time, May, June time, May, May, June yeah. time uh, last year, uh, was to uh, support uh, the government, to support the Prime Minister, um, and um, uh, and that was effectively uh, the, the response which I sent out. I admit now that I think um, I have learnt in my first 14 months of being a Member of Parliament, and crikey, there's a a lot of learning to do uh, when you take on this responsibility. Um, if I could roll back the clock, I would not have sent that piece of correspondence out. And I am quite happily to admit that if there is something that I could have changed in terms of the letters that I send out, I got that one wrong. And I am quite happy to say that. So um, Downing Street was telling you this is the this is the story. You need to communicate this with your constituents, yeah. and you backed, backed yeah. the prime minister on that. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I backed the the, the prime minister um, quite rightly. You know, you uh, I am a conservative member of parliament, um, and I, in backing the prime minister, backed somebody who he at the time felt that he trusted um, in providing that advice, um, and as a new MP went a lot and and that was the stance that I took and I stood by that stance um but you're the first person to have asked me uh that since um uh, you know since uh, Dominic uh, Cummings has taken the the view that he has and my view is actually uh you know 
what regardless of what he's coming out and there will be inquiries um you know and i am not sitting here saying i agree at all with what dominic cummings is saying or disagree a public inquiry will deal with that but simply um the way in which dominic cummings seems to be now coming out with uh, all of his allegations whether they're true or false about certain individuals within government i just think me sitting here as a backbench Conservative MP, having never met this gentleman, um, I felt now wrong it was to defend that individual uh, when I did and send out those, that pieces of correspondence and the actions that he took. So are you a little more sceptical now when Downing Street sends you stuff or when Tory party central office send you stuff to say this is this is the truth on this I, well crikey we're all individuals and we can all make up our own mind uh, on that um, um, and You know, I'm. I'm. I I feel that I, you know, can always make up make up my own view on things. Um, But I think it's a different case going forward, supporting members of Parliament and the views that they take, as opposed to individuals who are not elected representatives. Let's talk about planning. Um, Another issue that you've been getting involved in recently, particularly around. Greenbelt, Bradford Council's been consulting on its big plan for the next 15, 20, 30 years of where it's going to put housing in particular. Can you stop any of these things that Bradford Council want to do or are they just following government planning policy and making these decisions? Well, every local authority uh, has been asked by government um, to set their um, their, their, uh, housing strategy for the next 15 year period, which will go up to 2038 from when it takes place. Every local authority across England has effectively been given a housing target set by government on what um, needs to be achieved in the numbers of houses within that local authority area. It is up to the local authority, so here for us, Bradford Council, to say where they think those brand new houses should be built. So it's up to the local authority to say, uh, OK, we're going to build X number of houses right on the outskirts of, of, of Ilkley or within the Worth Valley, um, or we're going to develop some brownfield sites. So the local authority at the beginning of this year started consulting uh, residents on their proposals on where they thought these new houses should be built. And um, I have made it perfectly clear that I will not support any new housing being built on green belt land. This is land which is designated with a, a, a planning um, restriction that stops under the current rules any housing being built on it. And what we've seen here is effectively within our local area over 3,000 new houses proposing to be built within our within our area on green open space. And you take Ilkley, for example, 314 new houses are proposed to be built predominantly on green belt land. So land that you wouldn't be able to build houses mm-hmm. on at the moment. And that's yep. in addition to many new houses being built in Burley and Wharfdale and I think 181 houses are proposed in Addingham. So you take that Wharf Valley corridor a lot more new houses are uh, being proposed on Greenbelt land. And that is something that I won't be supporting. But where else could they put them, though, I suppose, is the argument. Yeah. Well, the argument is that it's up to the local authority to look at what brownfield land is available uh, and also what green field land is available. So land that doesn't currently have that strict planning restriction on. And, and again, uh, I know Addingham as a village, for example, they've just spent years going through their neighbourhood development plan, um, which I think came to an agreement with the local authority to build about 75 new houses within the village uh, give or take a few numbers just from memory I'm talking here but around 75 new houses Mm. and all of a sudden they've now got a proposal by Bradford Council having only just got through that hurdle that very localised hurdle of the neighbourhood development plan and and now 181 houses are being proposed on the village Um, and this of course is all having huge impact on you know, uh, our local infrastructure, whether it be schools, healthcare services, the roads, uh, parking. Um, And I just think that what I haven't seen from Bradford Council is any justification that these particular settlements across the constituency and the same applies up in the Worth Valley in 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 Oakworth, um, in Oxenhope um, and on the outskirts of of Keighley. In Riddlesden, many more houses are proposed uh, on green belt land. But what I haven't seen is any 
staunch justification that that individual settlement needs X number of houses over the next 15 years. And um, what I also haven't seen from uh, Bradford Council is all these houses should be built, you know, justification is why it should be taken out of Greenbelt and why brownfield land is being prioritised elsewhere. And Bradford Council would presumably say, as long as they follow the current planning policy, they can they can you know pass these. And you, as the MP, can be involved in the process of a, a housing application, a housing development application. But ultimately, it's Bradford Council's decision. So you don't actually have much power in in saying no, do you? Well, I certainly have the ability to lobby the local authority. I certainly have the ability to um, to to round support from residents who who may agree with me that it's completely inappropriate to do be developing our green um, green belt land um, and make that case heard loud and clear to the local authority, to Bradford Council. Um, and I, of course, also have the ability to talk about this in Westminster um, because that is my role, to take the constituency's voice to Westminster. And if that means it going via Westminster back to Bradford Council, so be it. And there's another point that's worth mentioning here is... Bradford Council um, decided to do their consultation to members of the public during a pandemic online, you know, so, so you couldn't go down to your local library and see the plans that were being proposed. There was no direct um, letters went out to every household and there was a strict six week limit of being able to contribute. I know that the Conservative District councillors that sit on Bradford Council asked for an extension just to give a little bit more time for residents to feed into this process. And Labour councillors voted against that extension, which, given the constraints of only holding it on a digital format, in my view, was completely wrong. And Bradford Council should have thought about giving that extension, just to give a little bit more time to feed in. There's a specific question we've had from Andy in Ilkley, who's talking about some land off Ashlands Road, which already has planning permission for houses and a vet hospital, but the council's now sold the land, he says for a, a lower price than was originally offered um, for a new supermarket. He says, um, do you think Ilkley needs another l- large supermarket uh, near to Ashlands? And has the council done the best for Ilkley by selling this land for what he says is one-tenth of the original price it was worth? This is where the council should always, any any local authority, yeah, and this isn't just Bradford Council, but it's Bradford Council in our case, should take a strategic view on what is absolutely best for each individual community that sit within that local authority area. So, Ilkley, the average house price, again, I may get this wrong, but it's in the region of over, I think, around the 400,000 mark. It's expensive. You know, it's very difficult for someone to be able to go and uh, buy a house. Now, if there are sites within Ilkley that are not in Greenbelt, and I, I believe that site is, that would warrant building houses of a range of housing types that gives that ability for more affordable units to be encompassed within that settlement, then that, to me, surely has got to be a much more advantageous approach for that settlement. You know, does Ilkley need another supermarket? Um, well, the market will decide that, you know, because... You know, I, you know, I don't think it's right for local authorities to decide um, what types of shops go where. You know, that's what the market decides, you know, whether on the supply and demand. But certainly what a local authority's role should be is identifying areas of land that would be best suited for a particular need. A couple of big uh, kind of planning issues uh, that we can just touch on briefly. One of them, um, the incinerator at Marley. Uh, Simon Newman in Oakworth asks, can you tell me your plan for preventing the incinerator going ahead, which would, if allowed, devastate the area? As I understand it at the moment, the Environment Agency has given the permit and this operator can go ahead with it. So is there a way to stop it still? Yeah, and it's it's it. You're absolutely right there. Um, in that um, we now have a site in Marley that was given planning consent by Bradford Council in 2015. It should never have been given planning consent in my view in the first place, but it was. And then, therefore, the next stages for the operator uh, who are Endless Energy to pursue is getting an environmental permit, which gives them 
the ability to operate. And unfortunately, uh, the Environment Agency decided after doing a, uh, two consultations to award an environmental permit. So uh, in essence, Endless Energy, who are the operator, have the green light to now uh, carry out uh, construction and then operation of that incinerator. I have campaigned hard alongside the Air Valley Against Incineration campaign team who have a huge following, over 6,000 members, I think, um, have been very strong in being vocal against our opposition to the extent that I had a, a a private debate which is what's known as an adjournment debate in Westminster only about six or seven weeks ago which was you know half an hour debate which I was the sole person speaking it's very not very often that you get the opportunity of having speaking solidly for 20 minutes in the commons and the environment minister Rebecca Powell responded to that um, and actually in that debate I called for mechanisms that would make it more difficult for the incinerator to take to happen like calling for an incineration tax now you know to try and make it actually financially unviable for that development to take place and don't forget this is an incinerator that I think the initial proposal started way back in 2013 um, so actually in incineration terms it's quite a small site that they're operating against and may uh, is my hope become unviable for endless energy to operate further down the line what I will continue to keep doing is holding the environment agency to account because they will be um, monitoring the the permit I will continue to hold Bradford Council to account as the local planning authority uh, should never have been given planning consent in the first place that's a real frustration uh, back in 2015 um, and I will continue to lobby the environment minister in Westminster to actually bring out disincentivization for incineration to take place because my view is it's much better having policy that focuses around recycling reuse recovery rather than incineration and landfill and at the moment we have landfill tax but we don't have an incineration tax I guess Bradford Council would argue that it was following government policy in, in approving it because if there was anything in the law that said it couldn't approve that planning application, it wouldn't have been able to appro- be approved. So, Well, they may argue that, but, um, you know, why not turn it down and then have that have that fight later on further down the line? You know, Bradford Council will come back with as they wish, but my view is it shouldn't have been given planning consent in the first place. Um, as a Silsdener, one of the big topics for us over the last few years um, was something that was, I think, in your uh, election manifesto to be... Uh, chosen as the MP was about the safe crossing over the A629 between Silsden and Steeton, particularly for access to the railway station. It seems to be taking a long time. I know your predecessors were involved in this. Why is it taking so long and when will we get a bridge? Yeah, I know. Um, soon. <laughs> soon, I hope. And, and yeah, I, I feel like I'm falling into that mode of just not giving you a, you know, a date there. Um, Chris Hopkins, uh, when he was the Member of Parliament, secured 700,000 from central government to carry out a feasibility study, which that feasibility study was only completed in my time of being the MP, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was undertaken by uh, West Yorkshire Combined Authority. But now we have that feasibility study. It has come back with some ridiculous figure, uh, I think of about 3.6 million of constructing a pedestrian bridge, which for the life of me, I can't understand how much, why it costs so much. But now at least we have the feasibility study done. It's recommended that there should be a crossing there. It's now down to me as the MP to get that funding in place so we can get that bridge built. Uh, And that is, believe me, something that I will keep keep banging the drum for and um, making sure that Grant Shapps as the Transport Secretary delivers that funding so we can get that crossing built. Because it's not just about the crossing. You know, if you're walking from Silsden to that roundabout, um, the pavements are incredibly narrow. And as part of building that bridge, what I also want to see is some compulsory purchase done, um, which is a mechanism of compulsory acquiring land so that we can make sure that the pavement is wide enough. But while we're at it, why not make it more um, cycle friendly as well so that you as a resident in Silsden can jump on your bike safely to get to the train station to hop on to go to work wherever you know or to go for a day out in Bradford or Leeds. Um, you, you talked about Bradford Council quite a bit and, and not being happy with them. One of the things you've started is a campaign together with your uh, your counterpart in Shipley to set this area free from Bradford Council control, so to speak, um, which would mean Keithley, Ilkley, Shipley forming its own local authority. Tell me how that would work. Would you still buy services in from Bradford or would it be completely on its own? 
Well, my view is, that first of all, you need to have a local authority. Uh, and again, this applies to any local authority, but a local authority must be delivering for what local people want. And that is, absolutely, you know, that's surely got, in simplistic terms, has just got to be the brand. You and I are both paying our council tax. Many businesses in our area are paying business rates, all going into Bradford. And my, you know, we do not see that investment at a local level coming back into our area. So that, to me, clearly demonstrates, and I get many bits of correspondence on it, that our local council is not delivering for us and meeting our expectation of what a local authority should be doing for our local area in terms of longer term thinking, you know, in terms of improvement. I, with Philip Davies, who is the MP for um, Shipley, are most definitely running a campaign to pull our two constituencies out of the Bradford district area because we strongly believe that that would give local people more say at a local um, authority level on how their council tax is spent. How would it work? We need to ensure that we have sufficient number of people within that area um, and uh, um, make sure that um, in terms of services, we can be financially viable. Um, and of course, we would have our options open. One mechanism may be buying in services, but of course, it's not just Bradford Council that are on our doorsteps. We've got we've got North Yorkshire just on the other side, a couple of miles away, um, and they're going through changes at the moment as well, getting rid of their district councils and looking at more of a unitary uh, approach. And of course, we've got Calderdale Council on the other side um, uh, of the hill and, and Leeds Council not too far away as well as performing our own services in-house and making sure that we're providing um, that better response rate to local people. It seems a kind of perennial complaint, I guess, for any local authority area that the places on the edge don't get the the investment that the places in the middle or, or nearer where the City Hall is get. Um, does Would your Conservative government support this move to create a new council and break away? I know at the moment, as you mentioned, North Yorkshire, they've, t- they've said they don't want local district councils running the services. They want it to be one or two big county-wide councils. So mm. why would the Conservative government say, yes, you can have a smaller council? Of course, um, the direction of government at the moment is all about, um, we take North Yorkshire as an example, amalgamation of smaller district councils. Um, but, but, but when what, it's what, run from North Allerton, Skipson is going to get less of a say in the same way that Keithley gets less from Bradford at the moment. Yeah, but but there is absolutely no harm in uh, taking proposals to government, as Philip and I have most definitely done. We sat down with Luke Hall, who's the local government minister, uh, only a couple of weeks ago, and he is open to suggestions. So uh, the, uh, Philip and I are, have another meeting uh, diarised with Luke uh, Hall, the minister, to actually discuss actually what does this mean? What is a sustainable level of residence that would make up um, a local authority? And of course, we're not asking for a district sitting underneath a unitary. We are actually asking for full control, a true local unitary authority. So where you're comparing us to North Yorkshire, that is about creating unitary authorities and getting rid of a two-tier local government level. I'm not on about creating another tier. I'm on about creating a whole new local responsive unitary authority. Well, the government's just created another tier by a West Yorkshire mayor, though, hasn't it? So some of Bradford Council's responsibilities yeah. will go to Tracy Brabin now. So, Well, no, it's actually the other way, isn't it? So there's more devolved powers going from Westminster to uh, the West Yorkshire mayor, not from Bradford Council going up the way but to for, West But for a resident in Keithley, you know, that's something now that isn't controlled by Bradford. It's controlled by the whole of West Yorkshire. Well, so it, it's it, less, it, dissolved, it's, less it's, devolved. It, it's more about... Uh, less being controlled by Westminster, more being controlled by the West Yorkshire Mayor. But actually, does that not create more of a stronger um, view that we, in terms of getting true local voices heard, even at a mayoral level or a government level or a um, or a, the new local authority level, surely having more local more of a local authority that is responsive that doesn't consider us being on the periphery of their district gives us the ability to um to, to get things done and get things um that people want to see done in their area speaking of which it gives us a, an ideal opportunity to bring in the captain sir tom moore commission which you've set up um obviously following his his death earlier this year you're looking at a lasting memorial for 
Captain Tom, where are things up to on that? Yeah, so we did a we um, we have the commission set up, and we're doing it um, very much in close um, conjunction with the with his family, but also the the foundation that's being created by the family, the um, Captain Sir Tom Moore Foundation, um, because we as um, his birthplace want to remember him in the appropriate way um, and we've we've done a survey and we've we've put that out to residents and we had a great response rate um, and the the, the 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 preference which came back is having some sort of uh, permanent fixed memorial uh, and the two strong um, uh, responses on that was having a statue but also having a a named area within Keefley a, a park named after Captain Sir Tom Moore but also, in addition to that, having some sort of annual, um, annual, uh, whether it be sponsorship or award or recognition that is given out to an individual um, in Keefley. And I think that's a great way of actually having some longevity attached to uh, Captain Sir Tom Moore in terms of memorying, uh, remembering what he stood for, which was all about, uh, you know, creating that better tomorrow, installing aspiration and hope. Um, and having spoken to um, his family, what they were really keen to emphasise was, yes, whilst Captain Sir Tom Moore raised a lot of money for the NHS... As a as a Keefley lad, what he was also really keen to emphasise was his passion for STEM related subjects. You know, manufacturing, engineering, and tech. Um, so where we're at at the moment now is starting to um, raise some money um, to get the, to get this in place, as well as making sure that we work with education providers within Keefley to make sure that we can get that better linkage between education and business and STEM in terms of providing some sort of scholarship uh, for an individual from Keefley to go into the STEM-related uh, job. And you're doing your own Captain Tom Challenge as well, 100 Challenge that was uh, launched earlier this year, running 100 kilometres. I think some of the people who didn't vote for you will wish that you're doing that all in one go and going as far away Probably as possible. Probably in the other direction, yeah. yeah. But um, you're, you're halfway through that now as well? It's... Uh, yeah, not quite halfway. So I have committed to do 10 10Ks over 10 weeks, um, raising money for three uh, local charities. And I, you know that will be something that I'll continue to do on a yearly basis because actually... Actually, the charitable sector at large has gone through some pretty tough times over the last um, 14 months or so. And actually, it's good to be able to use that as an opportunity in my role to talk about some of the charities that are operating at a local level that people don't know about. So um, and that's what I'll certainly be doing over over that 10 week period. Yeah. We are putting your questions to the Keithy and Ilkley MP, Robbie Moore, who's with us here on Rumble's Radio. And I wanted to talk now a little bit about your voting record in the Commons and how voting works. Um, we've had quite a lot of questions sent in about this. You have voted against the government before, I think only once, is that right? Um, so I suppose people are wondering whether you might do it again sometime and, and rebel. Uh, there's a vote coming up on Monday, which we'll ask you about in a moment. But um, some specifics that people have asked. Why did you vote against measures to prevent climate change? Why did you vote against stricter measures for tax avoidance? Yeah, well, I, I think what you're referring to there is um, possibly some examples of amendments that have been put forward to uh, various pieces of legislation that have been going through the House. So, for example, take the Environment Bill um, that is currently going through uh, the House. You know, so that is a major piece of legislation that's got some fantastic um principles in it and pieces uh, uh, you know on air quality water quality whatever it may be but what may happen is uh, any individual member of parliament has the opportunity to put down an amendment to a bill so uh, let's take the first one that you use there voting a very generic comment there voting, voting to prevent climate change yeah so voting to prevent climate change so amendment could be put down by the opposition party um, or by an individual within the opposition party you know and of course when you're voting, you have your core values and you also have your principles that are attached to whatever you're voting on, but also you're voting generally with with the party that you're representing, uh, you're, sorry, that you're standing with. Um, now, that may have been an amendment that was put forward and then gets picked up by a website that then brands you as being anti-climate 
change preventative measures and, and mitigation measures and, and puts you very much in one category. And then you spend your lifetime after that trying to justify that, no, I am not against those preventative measures because I very much support the good measures that we've seen in the Environment Bill. And I think perhaps the most high profile of that last year was the Labour proposal on school meals and extending the free provision uh, for school children. Phil says, hey, Robbie, explain voting against free school meals. Generally interested to your reason. Mm. Uh, Benjamin, hi, Robbie Moore. Why did you vote against feeding hungry children? Tony Dexter, uh, why did you vote against feeding children? Mm. And again, it's that, isn't it? It wasn't yeah. a government proposal. It was an opposition proposal. Yeah, so so that was a uh, what's known as an opposition day debate. Um, so the op- any opposition party gets allocated um, so many days to debate whatever they choose to debate in the in the House of Parliament. So uh, the Labour Party put down a proposal um, which was all about obviously free school meals. Um, but you can tell by the nature of the, how the questions have been worded there. You know, why did you um, why did you stop uh, vote to stop feeding hungry kids? Uh, of course, no MP goes in to vote to starve children. I mean, you just don't do that. What I was voting against was the Labour Party's proposals of their strategy to deal with that issue. But what we had coming down the pipeline was the COVID winter grant, which dealt with what the Labour Party were proposing, but more, including children's activities over holiday time. So it was actually about, yes, feeding children, but also, yes, getting children involved in activities over a holiday period. So what actually the, the Conservative government were proposing was more encompassing and more more benefiting to many to, to children that are going through the education system. So you, the, the challenge you understand though that it yeah. doesn't necessarily oh, look I good, does it? No, when I when com- there is a vote no, and it's on no. the telly and they say, "Do you want to give free school meals to children?" and you say no. Yeah, and and that's the challenge that I have learnt very much so in my first fourteen months of of being a member of Parliament. That is all about whatever the headline reads, rather than looking at the detail and. You know, so that you know, so therefore we are being asked to vote on an opposition day deba- debate. Um, you know, and you know, regardless of whether what the debate's about, but it's about that headline vote. You know, Robbie Moore has voted against X, Y, and Z. Well, I've actually voted about that against that particular strategy of dealing with it. It doesn't mean to say I'm voting against that headline as it's being proposed. You've got to vote on Monday on foreign aid. Um, Lydia says, how do you justify the cut to 0.5% of national income when the Conservative 2019 manifesto committed to maintaining it at 0.7%? And how will you be voting? Well, um, I... uh... Um, this is very much a live issue. I have um, fed into my whip, um, which again, this is how the system works. If you um, if you have a concern about a proposal that is being put forward by the government, or you know, um, and you are being asked to vote on it, if you have a concern about it, you feed into your whip, and that sort of gives them an indication of, um, you know how this is going to be felt on the floor of the House when a a vote is asked to be taken place. Um, I have, earlier this week, fed in my concerns to to my whip about about what the government is proposing to do. There is an amendment that's down on the floor of the House at the moment, which has been put forward by two of my colleagues and backed by many others. Um, And, you know, at the moment, I have said to the government that, look, I think that I am highly likely going to be supporting that amendment. Okay, and in in terms of your one time that you did vote against the government, um, why did you take that extra? I think we spoke at the time, but you know what what was it that pushed you over the edge on that one that perhaps hasn't on others? Because at the, and that that when I voted uh, against the government at the mo- uh, in that particular one, that was about um, the tiered approach um, with the restrictions coupled with the level of support that was going financial support that was going to be provided to the hospitality sector and you know I'm representing an area as I said at the beginning of this interview that has never ever come out of restrictions you know I could not look certain businesses in the eye knowing that yet again I had voted for another approach that wasn't providing sufficient enough um, financial support with those 
additional restrictions that were coming into place. And I, again, fed into my whip, um, as I have done this week on uh, on a different issue, uh, on um, on the foreign aid uh, su support, that I didn't feel that the approach that was uh, being taken by government at the time was the appropriate one. And that resulted in me um, doing lobbying to see if the government could change their position, of which they didn't at that time, and that resulted in me voting against the government on that issue. How do you see yourself as a as a conservative backbencher who's kind of going along with everything that the government says is a good thing or somebody wants to challenge and be awkward sometimes and in the first situation is that somebody with political aspirations to be a minister or get into the cabinet one day? You know, my, because you've my, got to toe the party line if you want to be selected for those my, positions. My view is that I am elected as the member of Parliament for Keighley, Ilkley, Silsden, Worth Valley, Riddlesden, um, you know, everywhere in this constituency. And first and foremost, you have to do right by your constituents. Now, I'm acutely conscious that the way of the seat is that most people in this seat didn't vote for me. You know, I, I got forty odd percent of the vote. Yeah, no. of course I won, but. I but most people didn't vote for me and i, I have to and that's make sure the people who are registered to vote there are people who are not registered to vote, vote. didn't vote for you either yeah yeah, yeah. so so uh, of course in the makeup of it is uh, and there are so many challenges here in the constituency in our area that need to be addressed you know so i vote with my core values which are aligned to the conservative party absolutely quite right you know but if it means that going out of out of that uh, that uh, voting pattern that is always voting with the conser uh, Conservative government, so be it if it means that it's in the best interests of that area that I represent. Just finally on, on that, um, Pam in Addingham says, are you making Ilkley your family home or is this just a stopgap until you can climb the ladder to a safe seat? You know, we talked about the, the constituency. It has changed hands a lot over mm. the years. It might be a tough election mm. when it comes around next time, whether, whether that's going to be 2024, 2025. Um, is this a, an area now where you want to carry on being the MP? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And because um, there was accusations that when you, when you first yeah. stood for Parliament here, that you're not from round here. Yeah. Why? Why we got? Yeah, and I've always I've always found that an odd argument. Um, you know, most. You know, I'm 36. I assume you know most people have uh, have moved around for their jobs. You know, you know. Uh, my parents live in Lincolnshire. I went to Newcastle Uni. That took me up there. Did a lot of, you know, had my first job in Northumberland, worked across Yorkshire, Lancashire, you know, um, and up to the Scottish borders. But my view is if you are willing to graft hard, if you are willing to stand up for the people that you represent, stick to your core values, sense check to make sure that you're, you're on the right line with the people that you're wanting to represent, and above all, work damn hard to achieve what you need to achieve for your local area, for those residents you're representing, then surely that's got to be far better than just being somebody that's lived in the area all your life and, um, you know, wanting just to represent the area because you're from the area. You know, my view is you've got to have have bold vision with trying to change an area for the better and be and work hard in doing that um so is this going to be my home it is my home and most definitely i hope it will be my home for many many years to come and just on this final section talking about your role as an mp uh, you're doing this today i know you do a, a lot of other similar things to engage with constituents as well um, we've had a few saying they, that sometimes you don't engage with them or your, you or your office block people on social media when they ask things that you don't like or that you ignore their emails or you ignore their letters. As an MP, you're supposed to be accountable, accessible. And I've got some constituents here saying that you're not. What's your response to that? Well, when it comes to when it comes to social media, um, you know, I, I don't... I don't think it's fair for me uh, as, a, as a representative or anyone that is in public service to face online abuse, um, you know, which I do on a regular basis. And, you know, I, I just take the stance that I will engage with anyone, but I certainly do not need to be taking that level of abuse online. And therefore, that's the line that I draw. You know, if people are going to be doing that online, I will block them. And But I will still represent them as a, a constituent. And if they want me to deal with, with their issue, by, by all means, write to me, email me, and I'll certainly pick it up. Um, I certainly don't um, ignore any emails or any letters that come in. So maybe it'd be worth those, if, if you are getting that, that sort of um, uh, concern coming to you, 
I mean, by all means, get them to, to contact me again. Um, but I am acutely conscious that it's very easy, and I've seen this through social media, for people to go on and say, you never respond to me, you never come back to me, and throw it out there. And, I, you know, I go onto my caseworker system and I look, well, actually, yes, we did respond to you on X, Y, and Z on these particular issues. In terms of being open and transparent, I want to try and engage with as many people as possible. The last 40 months has not been easy because of the restrictions, but by coming onto your station here, by um, getting surgeries rolling out, um, by doing street surgeries, supermarket surgeries, you know, catch people on their, their daily, you know, their daily activities. So um, that's the way to do it. But I would like to think that I'm uh, as accessible as, as can be and will certainly, you know, not shy away from anyone that doesn't agree with me. Um, uh, you know, that's the role that we're in, you know, to uh, take on any debate on any subject. Robbie, we've had one question about Brexit. <laughs> Just one. And it's from Tilly, who's in Silsden. She says, please tell me five actual benefits or opportunities that Brexit has created for our constituency, particularly our young people, things that didn't exist when we were members of the EU. Well, Brexit has created... Um many opportunities um, at a national level which inevitably come down to a localised level. So at the moment, let's take trade, right, which impacts many of our manufacturing, engineering, tech and other businesses in the constituency. Um, we are now negotiating many trade agreements. Uh, we, we've currently got the Australia um, agree, a trade agreement going through, um, which will hopefully open the door for 11 other countries in the um, Asia-Pacific area. But that's all about looking at free trade agreements, removing tariffs and quotas and getting the an opening Britain up to the world for global transactions to take place much easier than what they were when we were encompassed within the European Union and that does have positive impacts right down at a local level for businesses that are operating here. Um, from a travel uh, perspective it enables us to in a non-COVID world, um, the, the ability to um, to explore the world from an education point of view. I had loads of emails about the Erasmus scheme, but actually the Erasmus scheme, um, f from an education travel perspective I'm talking about, was actually quite specialised and quite close-knit to certain people going through the education system. Where we've now got the Turing scheme, which opens it up to much more people from deprived backgrounds. Again, benefiting or having the, when we can, the ability to benefit people in the constituency here. Um, and also, I think you have to look at, um, at the benefits in terms of collaboration from, um, you, let's, look at, um, let's look at the vaccine rollout from a, from a healthcare perspective. You know, many of the vaccines that we are using here, and I'm just using this as a live example, have been designed and developed by other countries, private organisations operating across, uh, across the globe, where we, because we are not within the European Union, have been able to order those vaccines, get those contracts signed and delivered right back to individuals within the constituency. We could probably talk about Brexit all day, but I think, oh, that, yeah, I well, think that's been done. Do you want done. me to keep going? No, 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 no. <laughs> that's fine for now. Um, uh, something uh, that you have been quite vocal about is uh, through the, the back end of the pandemic, getting pubs and hospitality back open again. And I know you've been at Timothy Taylor's Brewery and Keithley and places like that. Um, an interesting question then from Julia in Ilkley, who says... Alcohol-related deaths reached record levels in the UK last year. They're on an upward trend this year as well. And the WHO and the Public Health England highlight alcohol as the most dangerous psychoactive, responsible for the greatest burden of disease, ill health and violence. How do you justify your unrelenting campaign for the alcohol industry? When, well, my, when it, you yeah. know, it creates those problems and you know, violence against women and, and all the rest mm. of it. Well, my unrelented campaign is all, all about supporting business and I will continue to support businesses, particularly, you've mentioned uh, Timothy Taylor's, but also Ilkley Brewery that I've been and visited as well. Um, and the hospitality sector accounts for huge amounts of jobs, not only in this constituency, but you know, across, uh, across the whole of the UK. Um, where I think it's best to address the concerns that have been raised in the question is all about education and what parameters you, sensible parameters that you impose around alcohol related intake, rather than penalising the businesses that are producing the breweries, the distilleries, um, the hospitality network, the cafes, the pubs, the restaurants, because 
you know, all I'm doing by going out and visiting these businesses is asking them, well, how can I help in your role to support your businesses, to support those jobs and that growth? So I think to address the, the question is more about how could I be utilised as an MP to bring more awareness to those that do wish to consume alcohol above and beyond, you know, sensible limits? Um, and how can we actually get better education, work with the health uh, department to get that messaging out there and to work with the industry as well? But I certainly would not be um, wanting to um, not support our local businesses that uh, provide jobs to our to our uh, many, many residents. A couple of quick final questions because I know we're a little bit pushed for time. Um, Steve says... Uh, like many, I feel the BBC charter needs abolishing. Uh, he says it's become a political joke with biased news reporting, various scandals. Um, as our local MP, this issue must be dealt with. Um, what's your view on the BBC and the licence fee? Should that be something your constituents are paying? Well, I think there is a, a strong case for actually transforming the whole system. Uh, I really do. You know, how we all consume media um, has 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 changed dramatically over the last two years, let alone the last 10, 15, 20 years. You know, with the likes of Netflix, BritBox, you know, even the iPlayer. I mean, you can choose when to watch what programmes to fit around your own activities. And that does then bring into question, actually, the whole role of the licence fee, I believe. And actually, where can we actually um, make sure that the BBC as a fantastic organisation is best utilised to provide that level of service that we all want to see and you know I I have to agree um, with some of his comments I think some of the um, stuff that the BBC produce is fantastic goes well and beyond Um, it's you know on a global perspective some of the drama and the the reporting um, on world affairs is second to none other countries can't compete with that offering but where what concerns me is where effectively you're you're expecting everyone to pay almost a tax through a license fee where there is concerns around the bias the unbiased reporting that's that's going on um and i you know i i do share those concerns and i think actually that could result in a bit of a shake up of how the whole system works to be honest uh, staying on culture obviously a, a really important time at the moment this summer with Tourists coming to Yorkshire and coming to visit some of our attractions. A lot of places like the Keithley and Worth Valley Railway, some of our cultural places have had government funding to make sure they're still here this summer. Um, What more can be done to make sure that this area attracts people to come and spend money? Well, I think it's all about singing from the rooftops about the good um, good organisations that we have. You've mentioned the Keefley Worth Valley Railway, but it's the Bronte Parsonage. Um, you know, it goes above and beyond. You know, Ilkley with its all of its independent shops and businesses. It's about creating brand Keefley, brand Worth Valley, brand Ilkley, brand Silsden, and really pushing out you know, all of those businesses to the wider offering. You know, we are effectively, I know um, Skipton may want to say the gateway to the Dales, but crikey, it starts here, you know. Um, and and also we were talking literally before this interview about how popular the canal is, you know, with people utilising that. People over the last 12 months have been using the outdoors much more than what they have ever done. And we have a fantastic offering here in our little corner of West Yorkshire um, that needs to be promoted far and wide um, and promote those independent businesses, not just the tourism ones, but the hospitality shops, the cafes, even going and getting a cup of coffee because it all builds into that local economy. And I suppose historically there's there's been this difference between Keithley and Ilkley sometimes in the kind of places they are and the kind of people they attract. And the constituency itself is a bit strange to have both towns in it. One, as you mentioned before, with really high house prices and one with quite significant levels of deprivation. How do you prioritise your work as an MP to make sure that the issues are addressed but other places don't feel left out? Yeah, and I suppose you have that you have that challenge. Any MP will have that challenge if they're doing their job right, you know, because every constituent that you represent, you're representing them in equal you know, equally you should be, um, if you're doing your job right. Um without doubt there are you know certain parts of the constituency that have very very different challenges to other parts of the constituency and uh, you know that's where when we're talking about making sure influence is felt at that ground level you know there are definitely certain mechanisms you know funding proposals we haven't even talked about the towns fund for example with the leveling up agenda you know that can benefit you know like the towns fund it's specifically for Keefley, ring fenced actually to a red line boundary 
for Keighley, a bit of Riddlesden and the and the Worth Valley. Um, and that's been identified by government because Keighley, for far too long, has been one of those deprived towns that has been forgotten about, let's be honest about it. Um, so it needs more funding, clever funding to go in that is cleverly utilising public money that is going to drive private inward investment. Um, So how I prioritise my time is making sure that the more deprived parts of the constituency have that level of attention at a local district level and at a national level. Um, Because let's be honest about it, we need to, if we're serious about levelling up, and that term gets used far and wide, you've got to bring up the whole community together to make sure that Mrs Green that lives in, you know, Keighley feels the same positive benefits as, you know, Mrs Green that lives in Silsden or Ilkley or the Worth Valley. And what's your main priority for this year? If there's one thing that you want to achieve as the MP for the area, what is it? Well, it's, I mean, it's got to be around that recovery agenda. Um, so making sure that we deliver on the town's funding to Keighley, but then making sure that on the back of that public money that's being invested, we can attract those businesses and make sure that those businesses that are in Keighley that want to grow or in Ilkley or Silsden or the Worth Valley. Um, you know, I was a, a fantastic business up in the Worth Valley only yesterday called Global Precision, who are a global business and they're, grow- they're going from strength to strength. So it's making sure that those businesses have the, 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 the space to grow and thrive. So my most definitely my prioritisation over the next year is supporting businesses, growth, recovery and jobs. Robbie Moore, thank you very much. Thanks for coming in for a grilling. (laughs) Thanks for having us.